Ross and Carrie, the show where we don't just report on fringe science, claims of the paranormal and spirituality, but take part ourselves. Yep, when they make the claims, we show up so you don't have to. I'm Ross Blotcher. And I'm Carrie Poppy. And today we have Dr. Eugenie Scott, the Executive Director for the National Center for Science Education on the line. Hi, Dr. Scott. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Oh, thank That's you. It's a pleasure. Normally we show up at the houses of people that we interview and, uh, and pester oh, them. Oh, I, do, I just heard the doorbell ring. I mean, <laughs> you guys are here? Oh, we wish. <laughs> now, you live uh, in the, the Northern California area, in the Bay That's Area? That's correct. Uh-huh. But we're all the way down in LA, LA. So we had to do this one by Skype, but we get to see your pretty face on an unmoving image. Well, the, the good thing is that we're at least in the same time zone, which I suspect is not always the case for your interviews and isn't the case for me as an interviewee. So this is a very pleasant all the way around. Excellent. So you are with the National Center for Science Education. Can you tell us a bit about that and what you do? The National Center for Science Education is a, a membership organization. Most of our members are scientists or people concerned about church and state separation and teachers. And what we have been doing for the last 25 years is trying to keep evolution in the schools and keep religiously oriented views like the various varieties of creationism out of the science class. And just recently, we have added climate change to our portfolio, if you will, since that is another topic that teachers get hammered about for teaching, whereas our position is teachers should teach the consensus view of science as established by professional scientists and university professors. And evolution is accepted science, and that the planet is getting warmer and people have a lot to do with it is also accepted science and teachers should be able to teach these without political interference. Yeah, you know, Ross and I were both at the amazing meeting this year, which I think is where you revealed that you guys were tackling climate change. Is that right? That's right. We had been given the go-ahead by our board of directors not too many months before that. And I'm, I believe the TAM meeting was the very first time that we had mentioned to the public that NCSC was going to be pursuing this area. And we now, I'm very happy to say, we now have a new member of our staff, Mark McCaffrey, came to us from Boulder, Colorado, where he worked for a climate science research organization. And he's very knowledgeable about climate change education, and we're we're really... Raring to go. In fact, we've already had uh, three calls so far from people around the country having problems of one sort or another with the teaching of climate change. One from a parent, one from a teacher, one from a school district. So oh, wow. we sort of, we sort of, all we need now is legislation, and we're all, <laughs> we've got the the, the forfecta there. You got your uh, work cut out for you. Well, even within the science enthusiast community, there's a lot of controversy over the issue. I mean, I have a lot of friends who would agree that evolution is science, clearly, but would take issue with the consensus on global climate change. Sure, and that's fine. But if you look at the survey research data, the consensus really is there. We're talking about over 90% of scientists agreeing the planet's getting warmer and people have a lot to do with it. And what you should be teaching at the kindergarten through 12 level is not the arguments among scientists uh, about details, but you should be teaching the basic science. Mm -hmm. And our NCSE's concern is that 
teachers are not being allowed to do this because they're receiving pressure from parents, from administrators, from school districts, school boards, I mean, that try to inhibit the teaching of what is perfectly good science. Mm -hmm. There's a minority of scientists who contend that either the planet isn't getting warmer or it is getting warmer, but people aren't responsible, or it is getting warmer, people are responsible, but there's nothing we could do about it anyway. And, you know, there's all these various views out there. No unified claim. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, you find minorities supporting each of those views Mm -hmm. in sort of descending order, so to speak, or ascending order. But the the fact is, if you look at the journals, if you look at the scientist associations, you find a very, very high percentage of scientists uh, agreeing with those two points that I that I mentioned before and um, there's a minority of scientists who disagree with this and fine go ahead and fight it out but don't fight it out on the backs of high school teachers right. and you know if if the minority manages to convince the majority that's fine then teachers will teach the new consensus Mm-hmm. But it's not their job as as high school teachers and middle school teachers to be uh, adjudicating the culture wars. Mm-hmm. So, so in that sense, it's very much related to creationism. And if we can take you back to that old chestnut, well, what do you think about creationism? Is it not science or is it just bad science? Is there a difference between the two of those? It depends on how it's defined, of course. There are many people who are creationists who don't give a hoot about science and they are creationists simply because that's how they interpret the Bible and that's good enough for them. And they don't care whether there are claims that it can be made scientific or not. Then there's uh, the creation science proponents and the intelligent design proponents who believe that there is a that there's scientific warrant to support their points of views, whether it's sort of the young earth special creation view of the folks like Answers in Genesis or Institute for Creative Research, or whether it's the um, Intelligent design view, which is a much more uh, narrowly focused kind of view that, that there's too much complexity out there in the, in biology or in astronomy to possibly be the result of natural causes, which they equate to chance. So therefore, some intelligence, which by which they mean God, had to be uh, uh, involved there, which is, of course, a very fancy and long-winded way of saying special creation all over again. Mm-hmm. Now, both of these camps seem to want to f- pursue persuade the public that there is scientific warrant for their views. If you look at the claims, well, they lose because the idea that the whole world was covered by water and Grand Canyon was laid down by Noah's flood and Mm -hmm. the Himalayas were pushed up by Noah's flood and all that is just you know, there's no evidence for it. There's a huge amount of evidence against it that the bacteria flagellum is irreducibly complex, as the intelligent design Mm -hmm. people say. Again, there's no evidence for it. There's a great deal of evidence against it. So in terms of their fact claims, the creationists lose. But fact is not science. The, what makes it science or not science is whether they view the subject that they're trying to explain, which is the complexity of biology or whatever, are they approaching this in the way that a scientist would approach it? In other words, are they proposing testable explanations, which then they go out and test against the natural world? And using the tests, whether they corroborate or whether they disprove their uh, statements, and whether they build on their discoveries to create more refined questions and, and more refined uh, tests is really what makes what, what would decide whether or not they are scientists. And, you know, the the funny thing is, 
that the young earth creationists are closer to doing this than are the intelligent design people. Mm. Because if you look at somebody like Steve Austin of the Institute for Creation Research, I mean, every couple of years he goes out to Grand Canyon and he stomps around in the canyons and he measures these nautiloid fossils. There's these very fascinating creatures from a a foot to two or three feet long even. And, you know, he makes proclamations about um, how these creatures were laid down. And, of course, the implication here, the wink, wink, nudge, nudge part uh, mm-hmm. that comes out in the creationist uh, literature is that they were laid down by the big the flood. flood. Right? Yeah, so sure. it, wasn't just a, it wasn't just a current of water. It was the big current of water. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is at least quasi-science, you know. But, it, but even this fails because he's not... He's not testing his propositions properly. Just to take this proposition about the nautiloids being laid down in a current. Is he out there measuring the whole suite of fossils or just the ones on this one little ledge where he came up with this hypothesis? He, he has a hypothesis now tested. And the other place where the uh, young earth creationists really fall down in not being able to call themselves scientists, properly call themselves scientists, is that they ignore all the data that disconfirm their views. And that is the thing you absolutely cannot do in science. You can't just look for the stuff that points in your direction. If you come across evidence that disproves your position, you have to just swallow hard and admit you're wrong. Mm And this is where the all both both versions of creationists really fail. So then would you say that people who promote intelligent design, instead of trying to find evidence for their claims, they're more looking for gaps between the evidence of the opposition? The intelligent design people are kind of an interesting case in another direction. Looking for um, uh, problems with with evolution is is part and parcel of both wings of the Mm -hmm. creationist movement, so to speak. But the ID people are are kind of interesting for another reason. The, The basic premise of intelligent design is that X, whether it's the bacteria flagellum or the blood clotting cascade or this particular enzyme system, system, pick whatever. Mm -hmm. X is too complicated or too improbable to be explained through natural selection. Mm -hmm. Therefore, if natural selection can't explain this, it has to have been guided by some sort of intelligence. Now, they have this outfit up in Seattle called the Biologic Research Institute, which doesn't seem to do any research, but then again, when you think about it, if the whole premise of your field is, we can't explain this through science, you can kind of understand why a research institute isn't going to be cranking up. <laughs> right. If you're looking but, for ignorance instead of evidence, yeah. you're not going to look there's, too there's hard. This, right. There's this internal problem with your whole rationale there. <laughs> but what you'll find the Biologic Institute people doing is, uh, you know, coming up with with here's a situation, um, here's an enzyme system, or here's a, a structure, which uh, we calculate would require X number of mutations to produce. And therefore, since it's so incredibly improbable that this number of mutations would occur in this sequence, therefore, uh, it couldn't be produced through natural selection. And they toss in irreducible complexity, of mm-hmm. course, that whole silliness. Uh, and so therefore, an intelligence must have been involved. How valid would you say is that math? And what's the problem with that argument, throwing out those large numbers and probabilities? Well, the main problem with it, it's a straw man argument. 
because nobody really believes that a, you know, like a hundred uh, amino acid protein, for example, is built by putting these two amino acids together and there being a selective advantage. And now we'll add a third and there's a selective advantage. And now we'll have the fourth and there's a selective advantage. Nobody believes that that's the way proteins are constructed. Do you think they actually think that evolutionists believe that or are they deluded? I don't know. Okay. But this is what they say. You know, what they think is, you know, I can't see their hearts, so to speak, so I don't know what they're actually thinking. But this is what they say, or this is how they act like they're believing, that evolutionary biologists actually think that this is how a protein is built. And that's nonsense, because that's not how we think proteins are built. Uh, They're built in much uh, bigger clumps, for one thing. (laughs) And you've told them this in the courtrooms, and, and they still don't get it. They don't seem to get it. They, they, who knows why? But yeah, it has certainly been called their, to their attention on numerous occasions that, no, this is not what we think. Now, would you like to actually talk about what we believe? But uh, there has, has actually been a considerable literature, even within the last couple of years, that show quite clearly that you can get highly improbable structures. Well, not like a vertebrate eye or something like that, but you know, like they claimed a two or three enzyme system could not be produced through natural selection. Well, bingo, there is one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the, the literature does have these uh, obvious refutations, but they don't seem to have really sunk in terribly much. You know, ultimately, ultimately, the intelligent design argument is a religious argument. So really, no matter how much you refute the science, the people who hold these views are not likely to be swayed by just being exposed to more science. You, you have to really attack, if you will, you, you have to undermine the foundational premises that these people have, which essentially gets down to, in, in both the young earth creationist or the intelligent design camp, this dichotomous view that if evolution is true, I lose big. Yeah. If is true. I can't believe in God. You know, I won't be saved. I won't see my loved ones in heaven anymore. And yeah, this is a big deal for for people of this religious tradition. Yeah. We were talking about that earlier. We actually have this quote from you that they feel that either evolution happened or God loves you. Mm -hmm. She thought was just perfectly put. And if you know that it's that it's that charged of an emotional issue, then is it more important to teach people the truth about evolution or to just make sure that they keep creationism out of the classroom? A, number one, you have to teach evolution. Children need to be scientifically literate, and evolution is just too big a a subject area to eliminate from the uh, curriculum. It has to be taught. Now, as to persuasion, if you will, which I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think that was something you might might have been getting to add also. It depends on who you're talking to. If you're talking to a strongly conservative Christian, no amount of science is likely to make much of a dent, and you're kind of spinning your wheels, to mix a metaphor here. Uh, on the other hand, if another evangelical Christian who accepts evolution can talk to that person, and assuage that person's concern that, you know, you don't have to give up your faith in order to understand science. That's a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. That's going to be more effective than just giving them a bunch of facts about evolution. Yeah, because they, there's a vested interest, shall we say, on the part of, of a conservative Christian from this tradition to not believe you. Right. But if you, can, if you can take that fear away, so to speak, by introducing that person to 
another evangelical tradition that's more open to evolution. And there are, I mean, you know, there are evangelicals out there who accept evolution and they are the best ambassadors to that wing of the, of the public who uh, feel that they have to reject evolution. But you know, most Americans are not conservative Christians, but they also unfortunately don't know very much about science and they know, don't know very much about evolution. And there certainly is an important role for just raising the general public understanding of science, uh, whether it's specifically evolution or science as a way of knowing. There is a role for shoveling science at people. (laughs) I'm all for it. (laughs) But it's more likely to stick, uh, it's more likely to, to, to be absorbed, shall we say, by people who don't have a vested interest in not accepting it. Sure. Well, we're curious about you and your background, how you got involved in this subject to begin with. Were you ever a believer in creationism? No, I always, um, actually, I got interested in evolution very, at a very young age. I was in junior high, actually, and uh, my older sister started the University of Minnesota, where, Minnesota, <laughs> where we were living, and she brought home an anthropology book, and I was flipping through it, and I saw these wonderful old reconstructions of the Peking man, and Heidelberg man, and Neanderthal man, they were all man, of course, you know, because that, we're, we're talking about, you know, the late 1950s, okay, and uh, I was just, I, what is this, this is anthropology. Oh, I want to be an anthropologist. So, and I became one. <laughs> but it was evolution, human evolution, that really hooked me on anthropology first, and then evolution uh, in general. And uh, you know, the the rest is history, so to speak. But what got you into educating people about evolution and, and feeling that you should be fighting creationism in the classroom, in the courtroom? I started. Uh, well, I. Got my university degree, and then I actually taught out here in California for a couple of years with a master's degree, and then I went back to get my Ph.D. in the uh, early 1970s. And my uh, professor at the University of Missouri, uh, Jim Gavin, gave me some literature from the Institute for Creation Research. And uh, I thought this was the most fascinating thing I'd ever <laughs> Yeah. Here, here I was studying to be a scientist, right? And they said they were doing creation science, and I, I just had to know more. This is just, <laughs> it was just too fascinating. So I, you know, yeah. it kind of was like a, kind of a, sort of almost from a philosophy of sci- science standpoint that I got interested in the creationism issue, and so I started collecting their literature, and you know, fine, that was great. In 1974, I was hired by the University of. Uh, Kentucky uh, is to teach physical anthropology there, and of course that means I'm teaching human evolution from day one, right? And yeah, I got even though students coming to an anthropology class, generally speaking, are pretty self-selected. Mm-hmm. You don't have an awful lot of um, you know, in the strongly, yeah, yeah. I mean, this they're just not going to be happy here, so. Uh, so I didn't get an awful lot of pushback, but I got some. And in talking to my Christian students, I, you know, I, I got a little better appreciation for how wrenching some of these discoveries were to these kids. I mean, you have to realize that a state like Kentucky, that kind of one end of it is Appalachia, and yet you also have big urban centers like Louisville and Lexington and, and the suburbs of Cincinnati, which kind of, you know, go over into the north of Kentucky. And so you've got some really good urban schools, but then you've got some of these 
county schools where, you know, the library is a shelf in the principal's room. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, yes. you're seriously, you know, seriously disadvantaged kids. Yeah. And yet they also come from very strong families, very loving families, very strong uh, culture with which they identify and properly so. And they show up at the big city, uh, Lexington or Louisville, at the big university. And all of a sudden, so many of the things that they'd been raised with that they just assumed are just set on their ear. What? The world is not 6,000 years old? This, what, that's what they told me in my geology class. That's what they told me in my astronomy class. And I'm even getting it here in anthropology. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a really tough thing for these kids. Yeah. And they get smacked with it from all directions, so to speak, because the university environment is a very different one from the one that these kids came from, by sure. and large. I remember when I was going into college and I was in the Christian tradition, I remember being taught specifically like college is a time when God challenges you and all these liberal professors are bringing their philosophies to you. Did you get this too? Yeah. Yeah. um, And, and Yeah. yeah. And you need to fight this. It's sort of God's challenge to you. That's that kind of dichotomous choice that is just so poisonous. There actually are three possible ways of going, but the tendency was to go in one of two ways. One was just to leave the university and go back home because it was just too hard. And they realized that if they stayed, you know, and continued to believe all these new ideas that were coming through, and I mean, they're getting assaulted on all kinds of sides, not not just the age of the earth, but mm-hmm. any number of other things that they have taken for granted and assumed that everybody else believed as well. But the the other thing is that you, okay, you're going to jump both feet into the modern world, so to speak, both feet into the the secular society, which means, unfortunately, you're cut off from your family, from the people who love you, from your social support, from the people who have picked you up any other time when you've been knocked down, and whom you love also. You know, that's a horrible, horrible choice for people to make. And, of course, there are, you know, middle ways. They do involve making some compromises in theology, I'm afraid, because unfortunately you can't decide that the earth is actually uh, 2 billion years old, which is kind of halfway between 6,000 and 4 billion. It it doesn't work that way. (laughs) You kind of have to accept the whole science. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the religious people that that, uh, we work with a lot, moderate and liberal uh, theologians and and, uh, lay people that are still people of faith, I mean, their view is that, as one theologian told me, if you don't have a theology that's consonant with the real world, you don't have much of a theology. Well, I'm a perfect example of that because in high school I was taught creationism out of a Bob Jones uh, University textbook, which I still have. And when I got to college, I learned about evolution, and that's a large part of what kind of brought me away from faith, even while I was a Bible study leader. So do you think it would be a better tactic for Christian parents to really teach their kids about evolution? Because then the kids want to have that kind of culture shock and scientific shock when they get to college. Number one, just a a quick thought. This is why so many conservative Christian parents send their kids to Bible colleges Mm -hmm. rather than sending them to the state universities. So they never Uh, have that. 
That's right. It's sort of a cotton bubble world, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But if you if you do send your child, uh, your young person, to a uh, state, a secular university, it's really clear if they take any sciences at all, uh, they're going to be faced with a major disconnect between a view of the natural world that they may have received from their religious teachings and uh, what they're finding out is plenty of evidence for. You know, I'm not an apologist for religion or for atheism. I think people have to find their own their own path. And some people are very happy being atheists. Uh, some people would not at all be happy. And they would be a lot happier and live better lives maybe if they had a more moderate form of religion than perhaps some of the views that uh, some of these young people that we've been talking about uh, come into university with. But, you know, the the fact of the matter is this dichotomous idea that you have to choose either between being a good guy Christian creationist or a bad guy atheist evolutionist is what is driving a lot of people either away from science or away from faith. I am more concerned with people being driven away from science because I'm not a person of faith and I figure I'll let the, you know, I'll let the religious people worry about that aspect. But I think it's very sad if uh, people are not being exposed to and being allowed to really appreciate and experience what a fascinating world science opens you up to. And uh, those kinds of dichotomous views are, are very poisonous, I think. Well, as we mentioned before, we like to get interactive. We like to go experience things firsthand. So we recently went to a creation museum. Do you do that? Would you go to a creation museum for fun? And and would you recommend that people do that or stay away? Well, I mean, I I certainly go to creationist museums. Yeah, I mean, I may have a slightly different style from you guys. I'm not sure. But I certainly went to the creation museum up in Petersburg in northern Kentucky There was a North American paleontological meeting uh, a few years ago, and I was so pleased. They invited me to speak, number one. That was great. But number two, they arranged a field trip of the paleontologists to go en masse in buses to the uh, uh, Creation Museum. Oh, my goodness. Did everyone behave themselves? (laughs) Of course. Oh, good. 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 Okay. Certainly. Yeah, we're we're always Um, friendly. That's our tactic. mm -hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it's part of being a civilized human being really it was really it was great fun well it, it was great fun and really dismaying i mean i i encouraged the field trip uh, be, the organizers had said well you know these guys want to do this field trip what do you think is this a good idea i said yes definitely do it i said this will be the most educational thing for the scientists because they will learn a lot about what you know what people on the other side think about evolution and if they haven't had that kind of first-hand experience this is a good opportunity to get it absolutely and the aig people the answers in genesis people were just thrilled that we showed up they could not have been really oh they were just ecstatic they of course gave you know they gave the group rate we got a break on how much we had to pay to get in and Mm -hmm. but they had somebody to meet us when the buses drove up and they were just doing handsprings they were so glad we were there I, i mean i find creationists to be very friendly and open and happy people i mean they but but the aig people were just this in spades it was kind of like they felt that if we only go through this museum there will be this great you know palm smacking on the forehead (laughs) oh my god the scales are now falling from my eyes they're that confident (laughs) yeah yeah and of course the, the the paleontologists walked in and they looked at these exhibits and they were just 
oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> there were not a lot of scales falling from eyes. Did, did they point out any of the flaws in the exhibits or inconsistencies or pose any uh, probing questions or just kind of observe? Well, no, I mean, there was, a, there was probably 40 or 50 of us or something. We all just kind of scattered when we went in. Okay. I mean, it was totally impractical for them to take us through as a group. And, sure. and you know, there's, there's a lot of other people there who are, you know, people bringing their kids and grandma and every out for the weekend. And, and uh, no, you're not going to start a fight with another zoo goer. Okay. You know, this is, sure. <laughs> this is silly. Well, but, <laughs> would you, would you pinpoint like a particular type of exhibit or argument that would kind of grate you the most that would be sort of the most irritating Oh gosh, I'd have to think now. It's been a couple of years since I saw it. I mean, or in general, you know, something that's well, brought up in yeah, a courtroom. I mean, yeah, so, something that was pretty offensive at the um, Creation Museum up there in Kentucky was this presentation of the idea, kind of along the lines we were talking about a little bit earlier, that anybody who accepts evolution, of course, they would say believe in evolution, right? But anybody who accepts evolution is bound for hell. And they have these various little videos and some exhibits and murals and stuff that purport uh, to show the the bad things that will happen to you. And so there's this teenage girl and, you know, yes, she studied evolution in school and here she is checking her pregnancy test. Oh. What a terrible (laughs) thing to imply. And he studied evolution in school and there he is, you know, connecting with his drug dealer. Oh my goodness! Post hoc ergo propter hoc. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so it's sort of like if you if you learn evolution and you believe it, this is the this is the the big fear. Here's right. two invented anecdotes to prove that. <laughs> but but they illustrate the underlying fear, which sure. is if you evolution and you accept evolution, then you have to give up your faith in God. If you don't have a faith in God, there's no reason for you to behave well. And as somebody who is not a person of faith, I'm a humanist. Uh, I don't believe in God, but I haven't killed anybody. In weeks (laughs) (laughs) forgot to schedule that (laughs) at the creationist museum that we went to in santee they had a bumper sticker and i i got one and gave it to don prothero who came with us (laughs) and it said it said if you're afraid of global warming it's nothing compared to the fires of hell oh oh don i'm sure you just warmed his heart (laughs) yeah yeah after the uh after going through the whole museum which took us a couple of hours he was you know a little hot under the collar so uh when i gave him that he was very excited we felt so bad for him we were like we got you something (laughs) of course don is also you know an expert on climate change uh and they had a, a dedicated exhibit there within the Creation Museum about global warming and how that's a big myth being promulgated by you know the scientific elite and the government. Yeah, I need to go down and see that museum because nope. you know, that used to be the old ICR museum. Right. Yes. Yeah, and, if you want to go, uh, we'll take you. They sold it to this new company. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm curious to see how many of the old exhibits are there. If, I don't remember a global warming exhibit, so that may be new. That's new. And there's kind of a new wing that's dedicated to like biological science and you know it's it's just about like human stuff. biology yeah but and i guess it gives them the imprimatur of i don't know just looking more legitimate mm-hmm. than, than they are and I, actually when i when we walked in the docent said oh well here's the old wing but but this part is the part about the human body uh-huh. and tried to sort of direct us uh-huh. there yeah interesting look we've got some incontrovertible science but I'd, i've been there before <laughs> and uh it's largely the same like all the main exhibits haven't changed 
the the, the big arc that where you know where you're looking down the um, the corridor into the uh, yeah. yeah great yeah. love it and uh, <laughs> now they have a bunch of answers in Genesis lit which Don was pointing out they wouldn't have had before because um, competing they were competing yeah they were competing at the time very good observation yeah. <laughs> Although it's interesting, though, if you look at their catalogs, they do kind of cross post, so to speak. But hmm. I think less so recently. AIG has kind of really gotten to be such a, the, the, such a big operation that sure. I think they're, they're doing less of that these days. You know, we also have been involved in the last couple of months with Reasons to Believe, which is mm-hmm. Hugh Ross's organization. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We attended one of his talks and yes. yeah, very different approach. Yes. He has something called the skeptics forum where you can show up if you have questions and particularly if you're a believer in evolution and sort of pose your challenges to him, which we did. Yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he had a very unique blend of biblical literalism and yet a, an acceptance of the scientific understanding of the age of the earth. Yeah, he's an old earth creationist. He calls himself a day age creationist, but he's not really. Mm. He's really a progressive creationist, which is a kind of view that uh, accepts that the earth is billions of years old. And he, he's, you know, he's an astronomer from University of Toronto. I mean, this guy mm-hmm. is not from some Bible college. He actually has some real training. And uh, he, he's, he's fully on board with Big Bang and the whole cosmological evolution stuff. And he's cool about that. But he kind of chokes at biology. That's the mm-hmm. problem. Right. And so for Hugh and for other progressive creationists, he has God creating sequentially. Uh, so first, God creates single-celled organisms, and then mm-hmm. he creates simple metazoa, and then more complicated metazoa, and then he creates a Cambrian explosion of invertebrate body plans, and then he gets into simple uh, chordates, and then lions and tigers and bears come you know, a little later on. <laughs> it's, it's definitely a special creation view. I mean, it's not... They're old earthers, but they don't believe that one kind, so to speak, gives rise to another kind. He right. believes in the created kinds. I was on a, you know, I, I'm quite fond of Hugh. He's really quite a gentleman, and he's just been kicked up one side and down another by the young earthers. They just can't stand this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are just horribly, they're, they're just really mean to Hugh Ross. I mean, that's the only thing you can say. Yeah. They've, they, well, of course, you know, he's, he says he's a Bible believing Christian, but he, he's an old earther. Mm-hmm. Sure. And that kind of kicks the slats under their view. So, you know, he's a, he's a much bigger problem for them than I am, right? Okay. I'm just, I'm a godless heathen, so I don't count. I, I yeah, don't you're count easier from, to write off. Precisely. He's not. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Hugh and I were on a uh, panel once. We actually, we put it on YouTube so other people can see it now, too. But we were on a panel at a church in the South Bay. Hugh and I and Dwayne Gish, interestingly enough. Hugh just made you know, a couple of statements that just were just amazing. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I thought, oh, Hugh, <laughs> but do you remember? He that? was talking. Yeah, he was talking about how God really loved horses because He made so many of them. Oh, okay, okay. And God, Loves God really and liked mosquitoes. And God really, well, he's talking about species, right? And God really liked. God, God really loved primates because He made so many of them. I bit my tongue. I should have said, "Boy, then He must be totally crazy about bats right. because there's there's more species of bats than any other kind of mammal." I mean, you know, bats are just cluttering up mammaltude what all is, over. The- what does God have against just- monotremes? I mean, the, yeah. pl- the platypus is my favorite. <laughs> 
<laughs> God, that's that represents. I'm sure that represents God's sense of humor. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, there, there's a real inconsistency with a progressive creationist view. Needless to say, sure. Is there one that you like better? Would you prefer there to be millions upon millions of literal six-day, you know, six-thousand-year creationists, or do you think the old Earth creationism is better? Well, you know, the more the more science you accept, I think the the healthier the situation is. So okay. clearly, somebody who accepts astronomy and geology, but maybe chokes on biology, is in better shape than somebody who doesn't accept any science, right? So you know, you at least have a chance of kind of reaching somebody who accepts some basic principles of science. And really, you know, the there's a lot of basic principles in physics and chemistry and geology. Okay, so what for our listeners who are listening to this conversation and saying, I agree with you, I agree with you, but what on earth do I do? What can people do for kids who are being indoctrinated in the classroom? Is there something we can do about this situation? There's not as much of the actual teaching of creationism in the classroom as there used to be. I think word has gotten out, this is unconstitutional, you'll get in big trouble if you do it. It happens. We know that. Uh, if you do encounter any sort of, guess what we learned in school today, Mom, mm-hmm. and they bring home some of this sketchy material, call the National Center for Science Education. We need to talk. We can advise you. Uh, every situation has its own idiosyncrasies, and the best thing to do is let us know, and we'll help put you in touch with allies locally, and we'll give you some advice that has worked elsewhere. Now, a bigger problem is that many teachers feel intimidated and just simply stop teaching evolution, Mm. which means that kids get an inadequate science education. And that is is something to be worried about. So uh, if you have children yourself or if you have neighbors with kids or you know kids, find out, you know, what are you learning in middle school life science? What are you learning in high school biology? Uh, Is evolution being taught or are those chapters just getting skipped? What teachers need is to feel that they're supported by parents who are concerned about getting a good science education for their children. Because what they tend to hear from is the parents who don't want (laughs) their kids to be taught evolution. And it's the heckler's veto. Mm -hmm. The parents who say, you're not going to teach evolution this year, are you, Mrs. Brown? And Mrs. Brown, you know, has probably several expletives going through her mind at that point. No, 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 Mrs. Jones, I'm afraid that we have so much to do. We we just probably won't get to those chapters. But we should be on the other side saying you're not going to skip evolution, are you? Or you even make it a little bit more positive that and that say that, well, gee, I'm really glad that we live in the state of X. Uh, California is a very good example where uh, evolution is really uh, strongly required in the state science education standards. I just want you to know, Mrs. Brown, that if anybody gives you any flack for teaching evolution, you just let me know, and and I'll be happy to have a conversation with them and help them understand how important it is that evolution be taught. Now, the probability that the teacher is going to send anybody to you is zero. But the point being is that you have expressed your willingness to help and your support in a very positive way. You haven't threatened the teacher. The last thing you want is to go up and say, you're going to teach this, right? Because right. <laughs> yeah. you know, that puts you in the same kind of you, – you want to be that teacher's partner, not that teacher's adversary. Sure. Very good. Makes sense to me. And keep track of what's going on in your local school board. 
And if anything kind of sketchy shows up, you let us know. This Christmas, I gave Ross a membership to the National Center for Science Education. You're a good person. Oh, stop. So, <laughs> a wonderful gift. So for, yes, yes, it is, Ross. So for uh, people who want to give that as a gift or who want to join the organization, what are they supporting? They are supporting my staff and a quite modest office, I must say, in, the, in a not terribly fancy part of Oakland, California. <laughs> and you are supporting my staff, which gives that kind of grassroots advice to the parents and the teachers and the school boards and the state legislatures when science education needs to be defended. Sometimes I I use the analogy that there are plenty of brush fires all over this country. People need to fight them. We hand out the fire extinguishers. We depend very much on local people who are willing to do the hard work. We can give you advice on what's worked elsewhere, and we can give you information on the science or the law or the pedagogy or the religion or whatever, you know, whatever is needed to help solve your problem. We can put you in touch with other allies in your state or community. We can give you advice on how to make a good presentation to the school board if that's necessary or how to write a letter to the editor. We, we do a lot of that kind of grassroots hand-holding, so to speak, Great. for helping people work through these problems. And, you know, the idea is to come up with a compromise so that the decision makers do the right thing. And so a lot of times affect is very important. How you present yourself Mm -hmm. and your view makes a huge amount of difference if you live in a democracy where you can't just bludgeon people into doing what you want them to do. You have to persuade them. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of being persuasive, what would you give as an elevator pitch if someone was saying, quick, convince me of evolution? What's the best case? The best case is all the different kinds of evidence that point to the idea that living things had common ancestors. Common ancestry is what evolution means. And if you look at anatomy or biochemistry or embryology or the fossil record, it all points to this idea that the diversity of living things today is as it is because living things shared common ancestors. We have descended with modification from common ancestors. We're at floor three now. Have to get off the elevator. I was going to say, no one has ever said anything that interesting to me on an elevator. (laughs) I only could wish. (laughs) Yeah, so thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Scott. Well, it's my pleasure. And if any of your listeners are intrigued by what we do, it's a very simple URL. It's ncse.com, National Center for Science Education, ncse.com. Come see us. Wonderful. See, I would have accidentally gone to ncse.org. What's there? Well, ncse.org, alas, is North Carolina Southeast. It's a realtor's organization that slumped under the domain name before we got it. Rats. Awful. Yeah, I know. I'm going to write a letter. Don't support them. (laughs) Go to the dark (laughs) Thank you so much for everything you do, and thank you so much for talking to us. It's been fun. Thanks for inviting me. Our pleasure. So our, our guest was Dr. Eugenie Scott. And now, a word from the president of Camp Quest West. Hi, I'm David Diskin, board president of Camp Quest West, right here in California. We're a secular summer camp for families of atheists, freethinkers, skeptics, and humanists. And we're thrilled to announce two California camp sessions this July, one near Sacramento and the other near Los Angeles. In fact, Camp Quest has over a dozen locations throughout the U.S. and a few more overseas. At Camp Quest, we give your kids the traditional camp experience, like archery and swimming, arts and crafts and campfire songs, but we add science, skepticism, 
humanist principles, and critical thinking. Basically, we tell kids how to think, not what to think. We're accepting registrations now for all camp locations, but we're also asking for your help. Help us support the future of free thought with a donation. We turn every donation into camperships for families that can't afford to send their children to camp. We're 100% volunteer-based, a tax-exempt 501c3, and our amazing financial aid program is supported by the free thought and skeptic community by people like you. Let's see how much Ross and Carrie's fans can raise for Camp Quest. Visit tinyurl.com slash ohnocampquest, or look for the link on Ross and Carrie's Facebook page. You can learn more about our California camps and others throughout the U.S. by visiting campquest.org. Thanks for listening. And now, back to Ross and Carrie. And I should mention, I am going to be a counselor this year at Camp Quest West. Oh, at least, yay. Yeah, the Southern California edition. So, send your kids to me. <laughs> That's not creepy at all. No. <laughs> you filled out a form saying that you would entrust your hypothetical kids with me. I did. <laughs> I was Ross's reference. Yeah. And actually it asked... One uh, of my references. Yeah. It asked how I knew you mm-hmm. and whether you were my coworker or my friend or my relative or all these things. And I couldn't decide exactly what to call you. <laughs> so I said I said that you were sort of a friend slash coworker, but mm-hmm. you were really more of a co-host. Mm-hmm. I like it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Anyway. We're friends. Yeah. Well, yes. Of course we're friends. <laughs> but anyway. Eugenie so, Scott gave an amazing interview. We got to talk to Eugenie Scott. How awesome Which, is that? That was pretty exciting. This is and why we I, start podcasts. Yeah, totally. And I got nervous when we, do you remember as we started the right. interview, I like started getting really nervous, which <laughs> I haven't on any of our other interviews. Yeah. But we wanted to follow up her interview with uh, the other side of the argument. Right. By talking to a prominent creationist. And you reached out to both Answers in Genesis and Reasons to Believe. Yeah. Uh, so Reasons to Believe was Dr. Hugh Ross, paying back to me, Answers in Genesis, which is Ken Ham's organization, sent me to their publicist, and their publicist lined up someone for me, and it turned out she wasn't able to make the interview at the last minute, and no one else that we reached out to has taken us up on it, and we would love to hear the other side of this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So if you know somebody who's a good uh, representative of the creationist perspective, send them our way. Yeah, please do. And you can email us at info at onopodcast.com. Of course, you can always find us on the Facebooks. We would like to give some shout-outs. Yeah, to some of our very generous donors. So, first of all, we have a, a mystery person who goes only by AC, AC. from Oakland, California. Woo! Woo! Thank you, Woo, AC. AC. Also, thank you to Paula Lauterbach for her generous donation. Woo! Paula! Oh, Paula! She sounds familiar. I feel like we know her. Uh, yeah. 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 So that's it for our show. Our theme music is composed by none other than Brian Keith Dalton, who you can find at MrDeity.com. That's a very nice man there. Our show is produced by Ian Kramer. Ian Kramer. You can find us on the web at onopodcast.com or facebook.com slash onrack, O-N-R-A-C. And remember, the only acceptable eugenics program is one that makes a lot of eugenies. And if I had a genie, I would wish for three eugenies. (laughs) 